From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Well, yes, this is The Conspiracy Show, but uh, it is Richard Serrettless. Uh, Richard is at home under the weather, and my name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard this evening on The Conspiracy Show. Glad to have you with us, and uh, we've got some interesting things to chat about this evening. But first, I've got to get something off my chest. This morning, I was listening to the radio, not this station, by the way, just another uh, relatively high-profile uh, radio station uh, and the moderator was talking to a scientist. They were talking about um, aerosol spraying. And apparently, the I haven't read the book, uh, I can't really say too much about it, but the, the whole tenor of the interview was the scientist explaining aerosol spraying. And his angle on it was that governments and science should begin to look into aerosol spraying so that we can recover our atmosphere, take the pollutants out and stop things like uh, climate change or whatever you want to call it and the acidification of the oceans and lakes and throwing around the ideas of considering having airplanes go up into the air and spraying sulfur and other kinds of compounds in the air to get rid of all of the pollutants. And I could hardly hold back from screaming and yelling at the radio and the very idea and for those people who listen to this program on a regular basis, you will know, you will well know that this kind of stuff, this spraying in the atmosphere, has been going on for at least 15 years, if not longer. There are jets in our airspace flying over virtually every part of North America. And I was in Prague two summers ago and saw it there, too, on a clear day. The chemtrails, oh, wait a minute, I should correct myself, geoengineering attempts, I call them chemtrails, have been going on for a long time. They're there. I was in Washington last May to attend the citizen hearings on disclosure by our friend uh, Stephen Bassett. And every single morning from 7.30 to 8.30, I would make my way down to the Washington Press Club for the day's hearings and see in the skies over Washington, D.C., all of these chemtrails. Where has this scientist been? I can't believe it. He's actually suggesting that we consider this. It's been going on for decades. And why this fellow doesn't know about this, and why the radio station that this was broadcast on isn't aware of it, somebody on the research team needs to get out of fantasy land. Uh, It really disturbed me, and I know that most of you who uh, know a lot about the chemtrail or geoengineering issue uh, would be suitably upset like myself. So I've got that off my chest, and I think I, I feel a whole lot better about it. We've got a, a tremendous hour of, um, of dialogue with you this evening. Our guest this evening, actually, you know what? Before I do that, what I should do is talk about next week. Yeah, let me do that first. Next week, uh, Richard and I will be on the program, and we will be uh, talking to uh, Tim Ball about the UN Agenda 21 I'll leave that hanging for you because uh, uh, Tim is an expert on Agenda 21, what it means, why it was brought about, and we'll be talking to him next week. And also, we'll be speaking to Gary Hasseltine, who is a UFO researcher, former United Kingdom police officer turned UFO investigator, who has um, actually, he did uh, testify at the citizen hearings back in May and gave some excellent testimony. And he's a a no-nonsense kind of fellow, and I think you're really going to want to 
listen to that individual next week along with Richard and I. And also, uh, one of our regular guests, Nelson Thal, returns with another edition of State Psychops. So we need to uh, pay attention to that. Put that on your calendar for next week. Our guests this evening, we're talking about the lost Malaysian jet and all the controversy around that. And you know as well as I do that just about every radio station, television station in, uh, in North America and throughout the world has been throwing out ideas about what happened to the Malaysian jet, the Boeing 777. And this evening's guest, Dr. Actually, Daniel Kaiser, he's a pilot, explorer, research scientist, and veteran. Uh, he is a recipient of the Presidential Unit Citation presented by then-President Jimmy Carter. Uh, Mr. Kaiser has worked on an OSI Special Ops and Counterintelligence Operative uh, from 1974 to 1979, including tours of duty throughout the Asian Pacific Theater of Operations. And he's got a tremendous background in all of this information, and he's going to share with us probably one of the most difficult to swallow understand, consider. It is a completely divergent line of thinking. And uh, I know I've read some of the notes uh, prior to the program about it. And um, uh, Daniel is very, very concerned about what happened to this jet and what it might mean. So let's uh, welcome Daniel Kaiser to the Conspiracy Show. Hello, Daniel. How are you? How are you doing, Victor? I'm sorry to hear that Richard's out of the weather. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah he's, he's been fighting it all week, Daniel. I don't, uh, and he's, uh, he's usually a pretty healthy guy. <laughs> Maybe somebody doesn't want him to talk. <laughs> you know, that's part of it, too. Well, uh, it's just great to have you on the program because I, as many people in North America, have been – you can't turn on your television or radio without hearing about this story. And it has literally captivated millions throughout the planet uh, for the last, what, two or three weeks, easily three weeks, I think 22 days. Isn't that about right? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's it's something that has really uh, risen to the surface and encompassed and literally taken over, uh, I guess, the media. And uh, before we get into the theory that uh, that you're espousing, and when I read some of the notes that, uh, that Richard gave me in preparation for the show, I, I literally, um, I was just stunned. It, it really, it frightened me. It absolutely frightened me. And talking to some of the friends that uh, I, I, I have um, who, who do listen to the show quite often, just throwing out a few ideas, it's something that did not occur to them. So before we get into actually the, 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 the chronology uh, of, of your theory, let's talk about the chronology of what happened, as far as you know, uh, about this jet taking off, getting into the air, and then disappearing. Can you just sort of outline the chronology that, uh, that, the, that you know uh, occurred? Well, and I'll... I'll... I don't have all the specifics here right here in front of me with all the times and, and the mm-hmm. turns and the altitudes and all of that. Yeah. Um, but I can say is that the what I would like to do is to cut through the propaganda, mm-hmm. the mainstream media news, and get right down to what the facts are. And the facts are is that we had a, uh, a Flight 370, which is a Boeing 777, take off heading towards uh, China on a scheduled passenger um, flight, and all of a sudden it turned directions and headed out over or towards the Indian Ocean and shut off their uh, transponder equipment, uh, which is common with the hijacking situation, mm-hmm. uh, turned off its beacon locators and uh, basically went dark. Um, it, raised, it, it flew to an altitude of over 45,000 feet. And then systematically and sporadically, uh, according to the facts, 
the plane came down in a very high-speed dive down to 5,000 feet, leveled out, and basically disappeared. Now, when you say turned off the transponder and the, uh, the location beacons, could you just, for the benefit of our audience, just tell us what a transponder is and the other location beacons are? Well, basically with the aircraft, transponders are and uh, location beacons are, are used for uh, being able to identify the aircraft for air traffic controller. It shows other uh, the air traffic controllers where the aircraft is, what kind of aircraft it is. It, it shows an ID um, which uh, the word is squawks. It squawks or talks or continually beeps this information saying, hey, I'm flight 307 or 370, you know, I'm Boeing 777, and I'm at this altitude, and I'm at this airspeed, and I'm heading in this direction. I see. So it gives, it gives everybody in the, um, in the ATC, the air traffic controllers, information about what the plane is, what flight it is, where it is, where it's heading, and they keep on, I guess, uh, you know, if it's flying over um, over ground, it's, they, they're handed off to different locations. Is that correct as the plane moves uh, th- through Absolutely. the air? Yeah. Depending on the radar, who, what airspace that you're in, they can be handed off several times mm-hmm. to anywhere from military bases, uh, operations to uh, civilian airlines uh, or civilian air traffic control centers, that type of thing. When the plane took off, um, who was flying it, as far as you know? Well, when it took off, it was the two crew members. It was the captain and the co-pilot, uh, both of them Malaysian and both of them Muslim. I see. At any time, do you think that that, uh, that changed, uh, or would, would they have been the ones that um, perhaps accomplished these other maneuvers? I can't speculate. Uh, it'd be pure speculation because mm-hmm. of facts I can't. When I'm talking to you tonight, I'm going to give you what the facts are. Okay. Then I will give you what, how these facts add up and what I consider to be, and my team considers to be, a logical and predictable outcome. That doesn't mean that we're right on the money. That doesn't mean this is absolutely going to happen. But mm-hmm. if you base it all on the facts, I think you're going to find out that uh, this scenario that we're giving you here is absolutely plausible. Yeah, I guess. More than likely, it's for sure. true. So. When I do the research that I do, we, we call what you just explained converging lines of evidence. They may be uh, individual factoids, but uh, most of these factoids point in a certain direction. And if you get enough factoids pointing in a certain direction, uh, those converging lines of evidence lead to only one conclusion. I guess that's what you're leading towards. Tell us about when you say you use the word team. What, what did that mean? You said you and your team. Tell us about that. Well, I've got a, um, I've got a connections with other uh, engineers, other scientists, uh, other researchers throughout the world that I talk to on a daily basis. We share information back and forth with each other. Things, for example, like uh, we worked, some, we did some work on Kosovo during the Balkans. Uh, we we've done work on uh, some of the stuff that's going on in Israel. We've done work on different disappearances and kidnappings, things like. that. Okay, well, that's, um, we're going to have to hold on there for a second because we have to take a break, Daniel. And when we come back on the other side, we'll, uh, we'll get more into, um, this absolutely stunning theory that, uh, that, um, that we're going to hear about. My name is Victor Vigiani and this is The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740. 
And you just might need those numbers tonight, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, after we hear what our guest Daniel Kaiser has to say about the loss of the Malaysian jet, Boeing 777, um, you just may want to, you know, send in your two cents. In any case, um, Daniel, you mentioned the, at, off the top there that the that the aircraft went into a very steep dive uh, at around 45,000 feet. First of all, how steep was the dive? And then um, three questions, actually. How steep was the dive? Uh, how far down did it go? And why did it go into such a steep dive? Well, there's a, there's two... Uh, you Actually, you're bringing up something I'm going to bring up with you a little later in the show, but I'll mm-hmm. go ahead and do it now. Sure. That the 777, that particular aircraft has an automated landing system on it because the 777 is a fly-by-wire. So if you have the autopilot on, and if both the pilots and the entire crew and everybody in the plane all suffocated because let's say whatever a massive decompression, that plane, if it was on autopilot, will fly itself to its destination and physically land itself by itself. My goodness. Okay. That's how sophisticated this particular 777 is. It has an operational range of between 5,000 and 9,300 nautical miles. Fully loaded, it can fly 5,000 nautical miles easily. That's full fuel, full cargo, everything. If it was stripped down, this 77, and it just had a light cargo mm-hmm. and full fuel, it has a range. This comes from Boeing. This is not for me. It has a range of over 11,000, almost 12,000 miles. That's basically you can hit. That plane can go anywhere in the world. Boeing's maximum payload on that aircraft is 104 tons, and it has a cruising altitude of over 43,000 feet. So what you asked me was is that the aircraft went up to 43,000, 45,000 feet, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, after a, sh- a short period of time, in turn, did a steep dive and then leveled out. We figure that the only reason why the aircraft would go to such a high altitude would be to depressurize the cabin and to get rid of or suffocate all the passengers. I see. The steep dive then would be where the pilots were trying to get down below because the pilots have more oxygen. They have about 45 minutes worth of oxygen aboard and emergency oxygen. The passengers have between 12 and 15 minutes, depending on the number of people, that type of thing. So if you've gotten rid of the passengers and possibly the flight crew, who knows, Mm -hmm. and you in turn take this steep dive, and you level out below 10,000 feet so you can have now get off oxygen. Um, one of the things that we found that was a key indicator here was is that the facts show that the Boeing 777, or Flight 370, did not do a straight dive into the ground. It did not dive straight down. It can't do that because of the way the electronics are and the computer systems on the 777 are it will not allow the aircraft, as a safety measure, will not allow the aircraft to go beyond its structural limitations as far as overspeed. Even with pilot input? Correct. Even with pilot input, you cannot physically do it. It's impossible. So what would happen is, even if you took the stick and, and smashed it all the way forward, mm-hmm. straight towards the ground, through the engines on full, when that reached its maximum speed, safety speed, 
pre-programmed into their flight system, the aircraft would automatically cut back the engines, make a bank to the right, make a bank to the left, pull the nose, begin to pull the nose up, whatever it would do. But it would bring it back, automatically bring it back to a safe or relatively safe or to its maximum airspeed that it can take. That would account for what they called was a real, uh, as they reported, was it was a very strange type of, it would turn left in its dive, then it would turn right in its dive, then it would go up and slow down, then it would speed up. That's because the computer systems, according to our research, that would be because the computer systems were keeping the aircraft from overspeeding and breaking up in the air. I see. So when, so when the, yeah, so just let me interrupt you there. So when the transponders and the beacon locators were turned off, did the, did any ATC, uh, air traffic controller or whoever, um, did they pick up the fact that, uh, these, A, the, the transponders were turned off, um, either manually or otherwise, did they pick up the fact that this thing went into the steep dive or is this something that you're, that you're, um, uh, sort of putting forward now? No, it's, it, the ATCs, uh, this actually, part of this was found out later by the uh, Boeing people themselves and the manufacturers of the engines. Um, the engines have, unbeknownst to most pilots, the engines are set up to where they have a pinging system that is able to communicate with satellites to tell how to go back to the manufacturer to tell the manufacturer how the engines are operating. I see. Okay. And there's no way to control that. You cannot disconnect that from the cabin. I see. So now why aren't we hearing this on the regular media newscasts? For You're our... asking me to speculate. I think that mainstream media is, um, I think they're, they're being manipulated by whoever, whatever, um, to, uh, with this information. I think we've been sent on a wild goose chase. Our... Uh, our indications are when that aircraft turned and headed back for the Indian Ocean with no pinger, um, with no ID on, no way to per se track it uh, in real time, that uh, when it went to the 45,000 feet, the pilots dropped it down as fast as they could down to less than 5,000 feet. And by the way, that only took a couple of minutes to get down there. So they were really in a steep dive. Some of the calculations say close to 700 miles an hour the aircraft was diving. My and goodness. Down and then back down again and the speed would come back up. Do we, know how, do we know how loaded the craft was? Was it filled to capacity? Do you know any, any idea? Well, they, they had a full load of fuel. Uh, and from what I've been told, from what I've read, they had a full load of fuel and about 200 or 230 passengers on board, I believe, mm-hmm. or something in that neighborhood. Right. Um, the fuel capabilities of that aircraft that were on there would give it a range, uh, depending on their their speed and, and weather conditions, things like this, would give it a range of well over 6,000 nautical miles. I see. Okay, now we have to take this in a completely different direction. We've gone over some of the information to give our listeners a foundation of what might have happened up in the air. Now I'd like you to throw at us um, the theory of why this happened, how it was commandeered, and what you might think, you can handle this any way you want, uh, might be the reasoning behind the disappearance of this jet. What's your your first um, comment on that? Well, we've got... We, with the team and I basically come up with two theories for uh, this aircraft. Both of them are not good. Um, 
Both of them consider that the aircraft has been hijacked to be used as a weapons platform. Now, we feel that the um, the mainstream media is, and a lot of the governments, for some reason, are not being told the truth, and they're never going to find, you're not going to find any wreckage of this aircraft. I really believe it. That's why there hasn't been any bodies floating, um, and I think that they're sending people all around until everybody gets tired of listening to it, and everybody will sit back and say the aircraft just crashed, and that's it. That gets these terrorists off the hook. The two things that we believe is, first one is, is that we can use this aircraft as a weapons platform because of its long range. We could put a small nuclear device, something like Korea has, which is supposed to be 500 kilotons uh, in the 500 kiloton range, or something maybe Iran has put together that might be smaller or might be a little bit larger. We put aboard this aircraft and sent over or sent out to any city, including Israel or, let's say, main, you know, mainland USA, for example. Uh, this aircraft could fly over the North Pole, come down through Canada, and detonate above the United States. And uh, basically, with that explosion at altitude, could take out the power grids of Canada, the United States, and parts of Mexico. Turns, turns back to the horse and buggy days. What an incredible scenario. So you're saying that if this was uh, the kind of hijacking that you're alluding to, that this craft somehow went into its dive, did what it did, went down below 10,000 feet, and somehow um, eluded radar or did whatever uh, you can do at that, at that flight level, and then somehow landed somewhere to be uh, hidden, commandeered, and covered up somehow – and then potentially to be used as a weapon of mass destruction at some point in the future. Is that, is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, Victor, let me try this. We've plotted out that from the information that we have, um, there's a place called Maldives, or Dyes, Maldives, which is just north of um, uh, Diego Garcia, which mm-hmm. is a U.S. military installation. Big, huge nuclear bomber base. Do you think that the U.S. nuclear bomber base would have um, probably the latest and greatest radar and make sure that nothing got close to them? You would assume. Of course. Yes, of course. Okay. One of my sources um, that has a connection with the people at, uh, at Diego said that their radar, quote, unquote, was down for maintenance during the time that this, so-called, uh, the Flight 370, uh, basically had been reported to fly over the northern island of Maldives. Maldives. From that trajectory, it's a clear and easy shot. Uh, it's basically about 3,600 nautical miles from the turnaround point uh, back in Asia for them to land in Somalia. Now, why we chose Somalia was this. Somalia has no formal government. None. There's no law, no international law, per se, there. Mm-hmm. Second off is, is that the, the southern part of that nation is completely under control by the radical Muslim group, Al-Qaeda-funded, that type of thing. In doing so, there are... Just in, in a short amount of period of time, we had located over 10 runways that were seven abandoned runways that were over 7,000 feet, some of them as long as 10,000 feet, that could easily handle 
landing this aircraft in. Okay. From Somalia, who knows where it went? It could be parked there. There's hangars. If you do the research, uh, if you do look on Google, um, you do uh, Google Earth, you can actually come in and start looking for some of these abandoned runways or military installations in Somalia. You'll find that there's a lot that's there. Now, mainstream news told us there was no place this plane could land. There was no place a runway was big enough to, to handle it or take care of it. Which, which is rubbish, which is rubbish, basically. Uh, the facts are not there. I mean, the facts are is that there's plenty of places of course. in a lawless land where there is no military, there is no real radar to check it, this aircraft, according to the people in Maldives, there were over a hundred farmers and citizens in Maldives that said this plane came over at palm tree level. It was so loud that it shook the people's houses. But nobody wants to talk about that part. Right. And there, okay. you're talking about a, a plane is capable of flying around 50 to 100 feet off the deck, off the uh, off the ground at over 600 miles an hour. Absolutely, sir. You're absolutely correct. So with the fuel aboard, the time that was allotted, what could have happened before anybody had really, mainstream media had picked up anything, this thing is sitting somewhere, or was sitting somewhere, either getting refueled or hidden, you know, camouflaged from the satellites, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. My big thing here is this. Victor, and I'm going to step way out on a branch here, and I'm going to probably get my butt knocked off. Well, that's that's quite all right. I'm used to being out on a limb with good friends. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I'm going to say the U.S. military, I do not believe for one second that Diego Garcia radar was down. I'm ex-military. We do not take down the main radar and leave yourself completely blind. It just doesn't happen. You do the backup, you have a secondary, you use ships, whatever, but you do not make yourself blind, especially with a B-52 bomber base. So they knew, the people, the U.S. military had to know, absolutely in my mind, my heart of hearts, had to know this aircraft was in their airspace. No doubt they about either, it. They either let it go by or the U.S. military shot it down. Now, I would be thankful to heavens to find out that it was shot down before it could be used in one of the two scenarios that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Okay, that would make me real happy, especially for the millions of people that this thing, this weapons platform could deliver the death and destruction to. But I don't feel that that's happened. I believe that it's been allowed to go wherever it was going. I know that with this corridor and with the traffic that's there, with the military units that are there, there are gaps or holes at low altitude that a plane could weave through that make its way to uh, Somalia without much radar detection. And in doing so, you would have to have somebody on the inside giving you that flight plan. Of course, yeah. That that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, you know, it's... I'm just going to get into a break here in a second, but uh, Daniel, you know what? I think you're, you're describing, I'm sitting here in my chair just literally shivering, you're describing a, almost another 9-11 scenario here. Um, a Hollywood script couldn't be written any better than this, and when you hear about the number of jets uh, that the U.S. Air Force took out of the air uh, on, on September 11th, uh, this kind of... Um, 
is a puzzle that is fitting together uh, in, in a very, very conspiratorial way. And, and like you said in some of your notes to Richard, it, this frightens you. I, I know it does. So, um, anyways, let's um, let's take a break, and uh, we'll come back on the other side and, and listen to more of what Daniel Kaiser has to say about the lost Malaysian flight. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. We're speaking with uh, Daniel Kaiser, who is uh, unraveling a scenario um, uh, he and his team have put together that the lost Malaysian jet has in some way been commandeered and is now sitting someplace at a location taken by certain individuals for whatever reason. And he's putting together a theory that this thing, this jet, is sitting somewhere ready to be used in the future for some type of operation, I guess in a quote-unquote terrorist scenario. And I don't know about you, but if uh, Daniel's theory is correct, uh, it's just a waiting game. And if, in fact, it's true, and all the facts seem to be pointing towards that, um, if this is true, we just have to be sitting and waiting for some sort of thing to unfold that is not very pleasant. And one of the things that uh, Daniel did suggest is what this thing could be used for, to set off some sort of nuclear device over North America and, and knock out everything. And then within a year, um, we're all toast. <laughs> Uh, Daniel, if if you were to speculate, I'm going to ask you just to kind of think about the political implications of this or what the politics or the military are doing right now, the politicos. Is it like a duck, uh, you know, sitting on water? Everything's sort of fine on the surface, but they're just treading water like hell to try to figure out what's going on, and they're just sort of scrambling behind the scenes to, to locate this thing other than what's being portrayed on the media in terms of a search. What do you think the intelligence agencies at the highest level possible are doing right now? Can I uh, – let me see. Let me try two words for you, okay? Well, actually, there's, there's going to be four. Okay. It's, one of them is CYA, okay? The second one is going to be plausible deniability. Okay. Okay. If you take those two factors, which most in almost all countries do, the first thing they do is they look at CYA. The second thing they do is look for plausible deniability. I think that there are factions in the global new world order that have, how do I want to say it, uh, insider information and control of many facets of countries in Europe, in the U.S., um, even in the China and Russia areas, um, and all through uh, Saudi Arabia and all through that area, I think that there are, are forces to play here that are dark, that are deeper than what is on the surface, and I think that they're the ones that are making the choices. Have you ever read the book Manchurian? Yes, I have, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. That kind of gives you the idea or concept of what can actually go on in a a black ops situation or what you call a deep cover situation. And with my years being involved with the OSI, um, we had several clandestine operations. Um, including uh, delivering, um, uh, let's see, certain banned chemicals to certain factions in Southeast Asia. I'll put it that way so I don't get into too much trouble. That's okay, yeah. At the classified operation. But 
we as young troops did not know what we were doing. We were following orders. It wasn't until later that we understood what the silver canisters were. I see. <laughs> and so this type of operation could easily take place uh, in a black ops, a nefarious sort of way. And um, I think it's been allowed to happen. I think it's been planned out. It looks too clean cut. I think they're doing the propaganda thing. Uh, one of the things, uh, Victor, that I wanted to go through here was working on a master's degree for emergency and disaster management. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, which was sad for me, and it, I, I'm having a hard time dealing with it, especially with, with classes, that 70% of the emergency and disaster management focus is not on helping people. It's working with the political game working with the local politicians, looking at who can make the most money, who can survive economically, and where can those funds be transferred to with the banking industry. That's what emergency and disaster management truly is about under FEMA. That's what I'm studying to do. And that really upsets me because people are like last on the list. That is very disturbing. Because the, I guess what you're saying is that some of the things that have happened in the past have been just, they've been set up. And I, like Pearl Harbor, for example, or the Gulf of Tonkin, or even 9-11. There, there is a reasoning behind it happening other than the explanation that we've been given. Absolutely. And I think, Victor, you're doing an outstanding job. I've never talked with anybody that is so in the know and has as much broad-based knowledge as you do. I commend you. Bravo. No, thank you. Uh, I, I believe sincerely that exactly what you just said. I think that this is uh, um, exactly what is going on is a false flag or preparing us for a false flag. Now, in my personal opinion, an opinion of not all my team, but m- the majority of my team, believes that the U.S. would be your primary target and Israel would be your secondary target. Now, several of the people in our group and one of Actually, two of the gentlemen that we have in our group are actually from Israel. They feel that Israel is the primary target for this. That, that's logical. Um, yeah, that's logical. Sure. I can see that. One of the scenarios that absolutely made me cringe, and almost, and I sat back, as you said earlier, when I found this out, I sat back in my chair and, and I actually shook, mm-hmm. uh, was that if you take, See if I can put this in a, in a scenario. I was hoping that we could put some pictures up so people could see what was there. You, you know what, Daniel? Let me hold you there, okay? We've got to take a bit of a break, and on the other side, we'll come back, and you can take some time to think about that because uh, we've just got one last break, and we can get back into it again, okay? Yeah. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, and we're talking to uh, Daniel Kaiser regarding the lost Malaysian flight. My name is Victor Vigiani, and stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome back. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard Serrett this week here on The Conspiracy Show. And we have on the line uh, Daniel Kaiser, who is talking to us about the lost Malaysian flight that we've all been kind of inundated by over the past three weeks. And 
just want to sort of lay something on you very uh, very briefly, and it's a quote that I, that I use in an article of mine, and it's very appropriate for right now, and it says, Participation in the North American democracy is largely based on the belief that citizens should never be released into the world until they have been properly sedated. This is a quote taken from an unknown convocation address in university. Not only does it magnify the state of denial and ignorance in which a massive proportion of the North American population live, it is also an historical testament to the lies we are all prepared to accept for the sake of convenience. And I think what we're talking about tonight, having this, this jet, this Boeing 777, sit somewhere on the planet, ostensibly taken by terrorists to be used at another time as a weapon of mass destruction. We'll get a little bit more into that in a minute with Daniel, but I don't know about you. It really disturbs me. So, Daniel, you were going to make a point uh, just before the break. Uh, Want to sort of expand upon it? Yeah, what I was going to say is, is that we were talking about Israel, um, and we were talking about this as a weapons platform. For example, um, on our Scenario 2, we had talked about it in Scenario 1 as an EMP weapon, and we can go into that a little deeper here in a minute. Or mm-hmm. Scenario 2, whether it can be used because of its of the aircraft's large carrying capability, tonnage-wise, this aircraft technically could be filled with dirty waste, nuclear waste. And there has been reports, verified reports, that the nuclear waste dumping area uh, in Siberia has been systematically raided by Muslim activists. So some of that highly radioactive material is beginning to to be taken away or hauled off or whatever they're doing with it. Let's go back real quick. Is that under this scenario, whether they're going to make a dirty bomb, they could easily fly over, blow this aircraft up with a full load of nuclear waste aboard the aircraft and basically make Tel Aviv and anything within seven, ten-mile radius of Tel Aviv completely uninhabitable for the next thousand years. Or they could do that to New York. Or they could do it to Montreal. Or they could do it to Winnipeg. Or they could do it to, you know, the, the list goes on. It could be done to London. So that's a pretty terrifying type thing. You're going to get a lot of uh, a, a lot of traction, but it's going to be in a localized area as far as the terror factor would be huge um, with them being able, with the terrorist group, to pull the dirty bomb type thing off. Now, if you really want to cut the head of the snake off, you go with scenario one, and that's where you use it as an EMP weapon. Back in 1943, I believe, and somebody I'm sure will quote me if I'm wrong here uh, on the date, there was a EMP test that was done in the South Pacific by the U.S. military with a 120 kiloton nuclear weapon that was exploded with an airburst that burnt out the streetlights in Hawaii over 1,400 miles away. Hmm. So within 1,400 miles with 120 megaton, or, or kiloton, rather, nuclear weapon, and I think it was less, I think the altitude was at 1,500 feet. I'm sure somebody correct me if I'm wrong here, but it wasn't very high. And we got 1,400, over 1,400 nautical miles Streetlights were blowing out. Communication systems were being knocked out. And even back then, in in the late 40s, most of our equipment was pretty robust. It was pretty hardcore, heavy-duty type of stuff. 
not like the electronics we have today, which is extremely fragile. If you if you did the same EMP thing over Israel, I do not believe that. I think Israel has has hardened their system, probably survived it. At least the military would have done that. So we have to switch the scenario back, and this is where I come in. I say, I think the U.S. is the, is a major target. Um, and my Israeli people say, no, 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 it's us. But if you did this, let's say over Nebraska, at, and you had an altitude of less than a mile, right. say you're at 5,000, 6,000, 4,000, 6,000 feet, mm-hmm. and you used a 500 kiloton nuclear weapon, that would be one that has been proven that North Korea has, and one that could be developed by Iran. And you step that off. EMP, the gamma radiation burst yield of that particular weapon system would turn the North American continent back to the days of horse and buggy in less than 15 seconds. In less than, sorry? Yeah, nothing would work. My goodness. Now, what that means, and people don't understand that, and you, your job and, and Richard's job is to make sure people wake up to what, what I'm talking about here. That's no sewer. That's no refrigerators. That's no grocery stores. That's no potable water. That's no traffic lights, no movies, no 911. Nothing. That, no air conditioning. That means no cell phones. And the real problem that we have, okay, if you can, if you want to back up what I'm saying here, do you remember the power outage back in the 70s? Oh, yes, very well. Okay, and the one that took out part of Canada and took out most mm-hmm. of the United States? Oh, yes. That was just from an EMP pulse from the sun and a minor one to boot. Take that and multiply that 100-fold. What do you think is going to happen to the Canadian people? Now, honestly, Canada, the Canadian people are probably in a much better situation. They're not quite as toys, not quite as spoiled rotten as Americans. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I know, uh, I know what you mean. Yeah. Oh, you follow me. Okay, they're hardy. They're more like the Alaskan people. People in mm-hmm. Alaska go, my power's off the line. Okay, yeah. you know, let's go out and do what we got to do and get her done. That's not going to happen in the U.S. At a 500 kiloton weapon going off at a mile or above the United States, central United States, most of Canada's major cities are going to be wiped out for, as far as electricity. Mm-hmm. Most of, almost all of the United States will be wiped out. We will not get back our generators. We will not be able to get, it could be years to get power back. FEMA, in their records and their tests, and what they say is that within one year, 90% of the United States population will be dead from starvation crime, and disease. So you're saying that FEMA already has a, a, a scenario outlined as a result of this? Yeah, Is that... yeah absolutely. Yes, I... yes, they do. The entire government of the United States of America under martial law will be transferred completely over to FEMA. FEMA will automatically take complete control of the U.S. government. There will be no elections. There will be nothing. All your all food production back. All food production in the United States will belong to, and that includes a little garden plot on your deck, on your apartment where you're growing your tomatoes. 
that becomes immediately under the control of the United of FEMA, Department of Homeland Security. And they and, and they would take over as quote unquote the government. Everything, absolutely, no elections. And we're talking about street. Uh, what was it? Um, I'm trying to think of the movie where uh, uh, the uh, Drudge, I think it was called Drudge, where they had street justice, where the the cops could do street executions on the spot. Mm -hmm. That is what FEMA is prepared for. That is what will happen. If you do not comply, you will be eliminated. Well, let me ask you then, if that's the scenario that FEMA seems to be um, uh, having in its back pocket, could they use not the actuality of this event, could they use the threat of this event to um, to insist on some type of martial law? Yeah. Um, there starts, things start to get a little convoluted here, was we here in the United States and South Carolina are missing three to four nuclear weapons that have been moved out by the so-called powers-to-be, um, administrative powers, not military, but administrative powers, uh, have checked out four nuclear weapons. <laughs> and we do not know where the... We know two of them have been destroyed off the coast of the United States uh, in a deep-sea explosion. But there still are two missing. Um, and where they ended up, Nobody seems to know yet. I see. So if this is a government operation, and if they do want to take complete control and bring in FEMA and want to bring in the Department of Homeland Security, just like President Obama uh, promised us uh, back in 2008 that uh, he wanted a civilian uh, defense force um, under the control of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, that he wanted it stronger than the U.S. military. Why do you believe that the Department of Homeland Security needs 16 billion rounds of ammunition? Very good question. <laughs> <laughs> my point, my point made. So, if you add these scenarios up um, with this weapons of mass destruction, this platform that's available to them, um, we've got tremendous worldwide attention to this plane that's missing. If this plane shows up and bombs Tel Aviv or drops a nuke over Tel Aviv or crashes into Tel Aviv, uh, the world's going to know that it was a hijacker and the Al-Qaeda took care of it, 911. 9-1-1 went around the world. Now, if you want to take the head off the snake and the United States, quote, unquote, is a snake, then you would do the EMP pulse thing over the United States. You would kill more Americans. You would get Americans... It would be a Mad Max scenario type of thing over the United States. And we are not prepared. Well, I, I don't know what to make of all of this. Is uh, it's just it's, it's almost like we're anticipating, as I said earlier, another 9/11 scenario. And uh, you're outlining something so insidious, Daniel, that um, I mean, it, it 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 makes it pales all of the information that we've garnered so far. It makes it, virtually everything that I've heard about this about the scenario, the whole search and everything, just almost become uh, irrelevant and, and to be, and be looking for a, a plane that didn't crash and, you know, and do all of that in the face of the possibilities that you're outlining. Uh, what if someone in the media did get a hold of this? Uh, you know, whoever might be listening now, what could they possibly do to bring this forth? I think they should possibly, um, if they're a good investigative reporter, would be to contact people that you guys have in your circle mm-hmm. of experts that have connections 
begin to be able to put together a team or members that a board that could go in front of the people of this world and and get coverage, at least on the alternative media side. Um, I do not believe that mainstream media would allow it. Um, and so I do not think that, that mainstream media will happen. Mainstream media is working on, and the government is working on the fact is that we are reactionary. We're not proactive. We are reactionary as far as people go. Well, that's true, yes. And the problem with this scenario is there is nothing to react to. There is no way to fix this. There is no way to, to pick up after this gets done. Mm-hmm. There is only survival. And you tell me, Victor, okay, and have your audience out there. They can, they can come on and they can give me a hard time, and I'm going to say to them straight up, everything that I've said here is technologically possible. Everything that I say here, history has dictated that this actually can be a scenario. As you said earlier, the Gulf of Tonkin, you know, um, the false flags with Pearl Harbor. The, the list goes on and on. The United States government, in my opinion, okay. murdered... 3,000 people. Yeah, we gotta, we got to cut you off there, Daniel. Sorry about that. We're right at the top of the hour, and I wish we could go on further with this. Um, we, radio's like that. <laughs> I want to thank you. I thank you wanna, for, for, for joining us this evening, and uh, we'll talk again soon. It's been my pleasure. Thank okay. you. Uh, this evening has been a pleasure, and I want to thank you all for listening very much. Um, please check out the Richard Serrett website, richardserrett.com. My name is Victor Bajani. Thank you very much for being with us. Good night.